not going to intimidate me. I'm entitled to my opinion. From the galactic controversy. What are you passionate about? What do you want? That's your opinion and your Thank you for coming on, Dr. Eric Wild, and as you suggested, I'll call yes, you Eric, and Alec may call you something else. <laughs> Welcome to Entitled Opinion. What is your most controversial opinion that you are passionate about, Eric? Uh, I would say that increasing minimum wage is one of the cruelest legal things that our government can do to people who earn minimum wage. The cruelest or the cruelest? Cruel. <laughs> Okay. Wow, that's quite a claim. Cruel and damaging. Why is it cruel? <laughs> well, uh, I think the cruel part is it's the Trojan horse, right? I'm going to give you more money, and you are my constituent, and if I'm going to get you more income, then presumably you're going to want to vote for me. So there's a promise, right? And, and it's not just a promise of more income. Along with that promise is I'm going to increase your spending power. That's not expressly said, but the idea is that you make you were making ten an hour. Now you're making twelve, and so you can buy twenty percent more stuff. Um, the reality is that doesn't happen, and so that's that's sort of my argument as to why. So, uh, do you want to hear my logic behind that? Yes, of because, course. Okay, because okay. you're an employer, <laughs> and you want more money for yourself, and you want more profit, and you want to steal it from the proletariat, right? Well, that would be an argument, and I want to visit that argument regarding profit margins, but I wanted to start just with a real simple supply and demand argument, right? So uh, where supply and demand meet would be equilibrium price for everything from a can of soda to a luxury SUV, right? And so if a government agency were to step in and say, federally speaking, cheeseburgers are now a minimum of $10. If you buy them at McDonald's, Wendy's, wherever you buy them, uh, you have to pay at least $10. So the people selling cheeseburgers are happy, right? Because they're going to make more profit per cheeseburger. More people are going to want to get into the cheeseburger business, right? Because it's more profitable. But that is offset by the fact that demand for burgers is pretty elastic. And there's very few people going to be willing to pay $10 for a burger at those places, right? Maybe five guys or something. But so in the end, demand would fall off while supply would increase, right? So unfortunately, labor is not significantly different from burgers or luxury SUVs. It's a touch less elastic, but at some point it certainly becomes elastic. So I sent you guys just a quick drawing via email, but essentially, right, mm -hmm. if, if I'm increasing minimum wage, then I'm gonna have more, if, if it was $10 an hour and now it's 12 an hour, I'm gonna have more people wanting to work and wanting to take those minimum wage jobs because now it's more lucrative. But unfortunately at the same time, because there's been nothing to increase the spending power of the folks paying that salary or paying that minimum wage, uh, there's actually gonna be a reduction in demand. So you increase supply and reduce demand at the same time. And because an artificial point has been set, equilibrium is never reached. So that's just like the boring economic argument, but I think to Al's point, the, the, more, the more interesting side of it is profits, right? So I own a business, I'm the big bad corporation, 
I want to pay people as little as possible. And at some point, the government needs to step in and protect those poor people uh, from being paid less than they're worth. So my main point to this is for most businesses, especially large businesses, profit margins are kind of misunderstood and profit in general is misunderstood. It's not a luxury. Uh, it's generally budgeted for. There's generally prediction made predictions made about what it's going to be quarterly or annually because organizations and their shareholders and stockholders, individual business owners live and die by that. So in a general sense, they either need that money, these business owners, these investors, these shareholders and stockholders, or they've gotten used to having that money. And when you raise minimum wage, the assumption is, well, these business owners need to come off this profit. Right. And that sounds great. Like, uh, even if I agreed with that, that's unfortunately just not what happens, right? So, because the argument is business owner, entrepreneur, stockholder, investor, uh, you are valuable, but we need to reduce your pay and reduce your returns to disproportionately pay the folks at the very bottom of the organization who create the smallest amount of value add. On a per unit basis. Correct. So what ends up happening is businesses do one of two things, and we've seen it again and again. They either decrease service right, or quality of their products, like there'll be fewer cashiers to ring you up, or um, they won't be bringing the baskets in as often, or the store's not as clean, just cutting labor, cutting those costs, cutting those positions. Um, or increasing prices, um, but I don't want to. I don't want to go on a monologue here. But yeah, I no, I think so. Yeah, so there's a lot of information, but I I understand the supply and demand. The there's a gap in the middle when you arbitrarily and artificially set points on the supply and demand graph for whether it be products or or labor or wage, um, and that that gap between the equilibrium point and the artificially set point is the dead weight. And you're referring to those people that no longer will be employed because of the uh, because of the new minimum wage. They're just that's the dead weight in that that supply and demand graph. So you're saying that because the um, because the people who own the businesses and the shareholders, stakeholders and whatnot, they have a certain expectation of what the profits should be. They keep the profits the same, and so to balance out that new dead weight, they either reduce the quality, reduce the cost, reduce the number of employees because they have obligations to shareholders. And if maybe if they lowered that expectation and that obligation to shareholders, maybe the minimum wage would be effective and it would have it would have the effect that we intended to be intended to have when the politicians promise um, you know, higher minimum wage means you can buy more stuff. Sure. But at the end of the day it doesn't happen. Because we have these profits that we have to make. Correct. Well, not only that, there there is the political pitch, and I don't want to go down a political rabbit hole at all, which is you constituent are going to be enriched by this change in your income. And then there is what's probably the true motivating force behind that legislation, and that is getting reelected. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be an effective policy. Uh, to what they're trying to accomplish if their primary goal is to get votes, not to truly improve the quality of life for the constituent. I think something you might be able to appreciate, Dr. Wild, is that I think there's an analogy to be had with conflicts of interest in research funding 
and trying to find the right kinds of results that are going to please the entities that provide the funding. You're perhaps more familiar with that than Hunter and I. Is that something you've come across at? I actually, in your podcast, heard about the, um, was it junk science? I listened mm -hmm. to that a little bit, but no, not really. It's not something that I have a particular amount of expertise on. Okay. Well, so back to your point about um, the, the, the Trojan horse aspect of it. I, I want, I have tried to make the argument to friends that, so first of all, um, it's, it's difficult to say whether or not labor is in a different class of expense than say materials because you've got human well-being involved. And in many ways, it can be economically treated the same as the cost of a material good that's required for production. But then there's this face-to-face -face or human element that can't be fully discounted. And I have said to people that raising the minimum wage hurts the people that it's intended to help the most. So the people it's most meant to help, it hurts the most. Why? Because when you, when you increase by any means a cost, like you said, the, the two ways that a business uh, compensates is it either finds the, a cheaper alternative or it uh, raises the price to be able to meet that equilibrium. And if it has to spend more on the same input, then what happens is that the least performers get knocked out. The, and so the people who are performing the least or the worst are the people with uh, people who i mean for on one metric they have the lowest iq or they're the laziest right well you would hope that and that's sort of what i've thought for a long period of time but oddly enough as i prepared for this podcast i happened to make a trip to walmart and i was reminded of a phenomenon called salary compression and that is essentially if the lowest members of the organization are going to go from $8 an hour to $10 an hour, what do you think the expectation of your current $10 an hour employees is, right? They're going to expect to jump to 12, right? So what Walmart did, because cashier is sort of a low mid-level position, they just got rid of all the cashiers, right? So now I don't need to raise them to $12. So it didn't actually hurt the people at the very bottom at Walmart. There's still the stockers probably making better than what they were making before. The folks cleaning the store, probably a little bit enriched, but they've eliminated almost an entire position. And I don't know how many cashiers Walmart had last year. I didn't do that kind of research as opposed to this year, or the year before, but I'm guessing it's more than a thousand, right? And there are plenty of people who would love to have that job and now that job doesn't exist for the most part. And I would argue that the good chunk of the reason that job doesn't exist is the salary compression resultant of the increase in minimum wage. It's really interesting. And then we ring our own groceries up and convince ourselves that Walmart's passing the savings along to us. <laughs> well, I think that brings, I mean, you could say there's a section of the population that doesn't add value. So, I mean, if you're making the argument that the is the people at the bottom they're making the least amount of money add the least amount of value then what's to say what's that say about the people who don't make minimum wage is the argument that they just can't add value to society and if if they don't add value to society then what what do you do with them Oof. do you give them do you give them welfare do you not give them welfare because if they can't make minimum wage because they're not skilled enough or smart enough or whatever metric you want to you want to use then where do they belong and what do you do with them 
Uh, that is well beyond my expertise and knowledge, anything I would purport to <laughs> be able to even suggest. But I would say uh, it is a shame that there is a system in place that would create a reality where people willing to work for less than minimum wage to do jobs that would unquestionably create value for organizations, but that is not legally allowed. They can't work. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is. So you is. say, so because the minimum wage is being raised that we're that dead weight in that labor wage graph is they're working illegally now. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying they, because they, they have would to be willing do something. To, they would be willing to if they could. That's what I'm saying. They're just not given the opportunity to work at all or to not work legally. And I don't know whether they're working legally or not. What I'm saying is it's creating hardcore, long-term long unemployment I see. for a set of the population that yeah. is willing to work. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think the... the the intentions are good, I think, and I don't think you're disagreeing with that, but the, uh, I think for a certain period of time, perhaps the people that can stay employed that have that minimum wage increase, they do have a benefit for a certain period of time until the economy reaches equilibrium, I guess, and then that's when the prices of things go up. I don't know how long that takes. Perhaps it's, it can't be instantaneous, but there's I mean, probably a, a few months or so, or maybe a year. I don't know where they enjoy that that wage increase without having that impact and cost to some things, and maybe it's just a continual uh, push of minimum wage up, and so you got to keep those the poorest people ahead of the curve, and while the economy is kind of catching up with prices increasing. I think that the reaction is probably quicker than you might imagine um, in terms of the fairly immediate change in prices because business owners pay attention to these sorts of things for sure. Um, not only that, they a business owner realizes, hey, my labor costs are increasing. Say I own a restaurant. My labor costs are increasing, but the labor costs for my suppliers are definitely going to increase as well. And the guys bringing everything to me on the trucks, their costs are going to increase as well. Uh, I need to raise my prices by more than just this change in minimum wage. And that's where the real rub comes in mm -hmm. because they are reactionary and trying to predict the future. Generally, prices will rise by more than the percentage that minimum wage has increased, thus reducing the spending power of those additional dollars. Right. So back to your original point, uh, someone might have had their minimum wage increased so that they're receiving a higher amount of numbers into their direct deposit. However, that higher amount of numbers does not increase their real purchasing power because the real purchasing power has decreased because the cost of everything has gone up a similar amount. Correct. And those that make the least are the ones that are most affected by it because they don't have the additional income or ability to save in most cases to go purchase investments that will hedge against that ultimate inflation. And one of the things in particular that they can't buy is real estate. So if you guys don't mind me sharing, I also had another thing kind of hit me like a ton of bricks as I was preparing for this podcast. And that is, I live in a $250,000 house. So I, that's what I paid for it. So my mortgage taxes and insurance are about $1,700 a month. That works out to just over $20,000 a year. 
That means if someone is making minimum wage, they would need more than their gross annual pay to make the mortgage payment on a $250,000 house inclusive of, inclusive of taxes and insurance. That's not a lot of house, $250,000 house, and it would take their entire paycheck and then some before taxes to pay it. Now, the real rub is I bought my house 10 years ago, and now it's probably worth three times that, meaning I couldn't, I make six figures and I couldn't afford to make the mortgage payment on my house at what it's valued at right now. So that's problematic in one way because they can't go buy a house, but, but where the folks with the least amount of spending power truly get punished is as housing prices to purchase increase, fewer people can buy. More people are forced to rent. As more people are forced to rent because we have an increase in demand without an increase in supply, rent rates go up. Here's the real rub. As rent rates go up, real estate prices go up. And then we literally get this cycle going to where at some point, I, I honestly don't know how anyone making even $20 an hour without some sort of windfall occurring could save up the 20% that it would take to buy even an average three-bedroom, two-bath house in the middle of this city. So is part of the natural correction that there's this upslope and that causes people to, in the excitement of the poker game, as, as their emotions are getting higher, they're taking riskier bets and they, they think they can do no wrong. And, they're, and, and then because of this, there's an eventual overestimation of the value that they're providing or too much risk going on and then uh big things break apart and that's when all the people at the bottom can kind of get into the cracks i mean there was a time all when... the people at the bottom can scurry like rats like the rats they are <laughs> al, al was uh, referring to <laughs> oh i'm not i'm not sure if i 100 percent understand your question but but let me counter with this and then tell me if it, if it does there was a time when you could buy a house that the only people buying houses in Springtree or Northwood to rent them out. And this is like, Gainesville, Florida, to be Gainesville, clear. Sorry, sorry. Like traditional neighborhood, not, not super nice, long established though, large lots, but older houses. Um, there was a long period of time where the only time investment buyers were purchasing in those neighborhoods is when housing prices were deeply depressed. Um, and it was because they couldn't get commensurate rents with what people were willing to pay for housing during normal housing prices. But if that same two bedroom, or sorry, three bedroom, two bath house now rents for $2,000 a month, now the guy buying it to rent it out is competing directly with someone who would be using that home for themselves. So you've got more investment buyers willing to buy. Uh, and that ultimately drives up the price for the single family end user that wants to buy. Cause now they're not only competing with the other people that want to buy the single family home to live in it. They're competing with all these other savvy folks who've been told for 10 years that real estate's the only way to protect yourself. Da, 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 and they're willing to put 20% down to make a cash flow in year one. It doesn't take long to inflate housing prices doing that. So in my head, as we're talking about this, it's, I'm visualizing that the natural reaction to that is to is to develop further away from the city center. So it increases sprawl. Is that not true? Like people are gonna, willing to, and especially in the age of working remote, and uh, won't people just get further and further away from the high demand spots? In my own personal experience, and that's a, you know, 
uh, one career in one town, um, people are more likely to rent, not buy, than they are to move further out. At that critical point, at at at, at the, the the price they're willing to pay for living. No, I mean for folks who aren't buying extravagant houses. The folks who are moving to the outskirts of town, a lot of times they're just sick of the property taxes. They got plenty of money and they're going and they're building a really nice house in Newberry. Um, in fact, if you drive around, that's it's not shit shacks that are being built out there. It's pretty nice stuff. I mean, it may be lower end construction, but they're certainly not selling it cheap. So I don't know that some again, someone making between ten and fifteen dollars an hour, if they're now willing to live in 15 minutes outside of the center of town, if now that means they can suddenly afford to buy a house. Well, uh, if before they were living in downtown and rent was killing them and they're working as a server and they're barely making ends meet, and then because there has been this suburban spread and now there's an up-and-coming comparable restaurant in, in this suburban area because that's where all the people with money who wanted their own place moved and they want to stay close to where they are and there was a market for a restaurant. They, now that person can go over there and earn the same amount as a server, except perhaps there's cheaper rent out there now. Too hypothetical. Perhaps. I think yeah, perhaps. perhaps but yeah, at that point, my crystal ball starts getting really fuzzy. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Eric on that one. I think that's incredibly hypothetical, but I understand what you're saying. Al, you're pushing everybody out from the city center. We're assuming the city center is where I guess all of the money is being made and that, and that would naturally push everybody further and further away because it's less expensive to live further away. I, I would well, imagine, I mean, people, a lot of people want to make their money in the city and then retire to the countryside. And that doesn't that help redistribute the economy? I don't think everybody thinks that way. I think no, not everybody, but enough. I would say, if anything, within our particular city, that force is causing gentrification more than anything else, right? Because now a Pleasant Street neighborhood is being occupied by yuppies, and that wasn't traditionally the case. And Duck Pond becomes more um, college degree holding, young professional thick every year. Downtown becomes more that way. Um, and even moving now into or East Gainesville as I've driven around and looking at properties out there. So um, again, I, I don't think, I, I think that becomes an answer for the middle class and the wealthy. I don't, I, I think unfortunately the folks who are not making a lot of money are going to be forced to rent. Um, not only that, I mean, I'm in the property management business and it was crazy because after all the stimulus money and then the, increased minimum wage, I knew that every owner we managed for was going to expect increased rents going into the next year. But the biggest shock was when we notified all of our tenants, they all expected it. That was bonkers. No one even complained. They were like, well, of course my rent's going up a hundred dollars a month. It's three dollars. Well, that, that means it should have a... been two hundred dollars a month. <laughs> well, <laughs> says the savvy homeowner. But what I'm saying is, like, people aren't naive to the fact that inflation affects rent as well. It's that's become common public knowledge, and anything that drives up rent prices again is only going to make it harder for those folks that are making minimum wage, whatever the hell that minimum wage happens to be at the time, whether it's eleven dollars, mm -hmm. twelve dollars. It's it's almost inconsequential. 
because the results are going to be the same every time. And it's almost worse now because we've got a pre-prescribed staggered change in minimum wage that now we know for the next three years what that looks like. So people are raising prices predictively in advance. Well, that's that's particular to Florida, isn't it? Where it is each, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in, so yeah. Hunter, I don't know if you know this, but they did some legislation where over five years they were going to increase the minimum wage by a dollar each year. So I think it went up from ten dollars to fifteen dollars an hour, uh, and that's yeah. going to finish in twenty twenty five. Yeah, we're heading to twelve dollars an hour in September of this year. Okay. Okay. I know. I know other states are doing something similar where it's a you know incremental wage increase over some period of time, but I don't think all the states are doing it. Nothing like giving savvy business owners ample advance notice of yeah, increased that's the costs. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely know who your your audience is with that legislation. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, and I, and I hate to paint like this picture of gloom and doom, but uh, yeah, it just, it, it really was frustrating as I started thinking more about it. I've been thinking about it over time and even making the notes for this podcast that, yeah, I, you know, I don't even know how that's a controversial opinion, to be honest with you. And I would be willing to go tit for tat with anybody on this point. <laughs> well, well, I think, the, I mean, a lot of people argument... would not, they would say that's a controversial opinion because they believe in the minimum wage because it's the, it's, really, it's the only way to guarantee that they get paid fairly. I think the only alternative is to just give them money. I think it's like a universal basic income. Or let the market dictate what the lowest wages are and have jobs that haven't existed for a while suddenly exist again and folks who are semi-skilled suddenly able to make anything. So that to that point, it was eye-opening to me when I was in other countries that didn't have the same kind of minimum wage laws that had people who had disabilities or who had or were old and not able to do the same kind of work still able to provide value and still be able to receive some recompense of some level for their services as opposed to having it um, subsidized either from wealthier taxpayers or non-existent so to materialize the example that's in my head when i was in taipei there was lots of little city parks all over the city and they were very well maintained and each city park has either like a senior citizen or a person with some kind of disability who basically sweeps up the leaves and picks up the trash and it might take them all day to do this job and if it were some uh, more able-bodied person they might be able to get it all done in an hour or less but maybe it takes this person all day but they're still earning something and it's at no cost or it's that it's it's not forcing an additional cost onto the society by through the taxation or through minimum wage and having to like contract it out to one guy who does all the city parks and he does a worse job but he has to but he has to cover all of them and and to me i that really i was i was so happy to see people who were fulfilled to be able to do to push at their whatever their particular limit was and to and providing value and to and and so to to i i like the idea of letting the market decide in that uh in that regard and it seems cruel because the counter to that i suppose is well if you're paying someone two dollars an hour to pick up leaves how are they going to be able to buy food and how are they going to be able to pay for rent and so if anybody's going to pick up leaves they have to earn at least 12 dollars an hour 
That's a lot of prostitutes. Well, the thing that gets forgotten is the leaves just don't fucking get picked up. It's not, it's the assumption is that the demand for labor is inelastic and it just isn't. Uh, And that misnomer is, you're exactly right, Al. It, it means, but so you say, okay, if I pay this guy $2 an hour, now he can't afford to pay his rent and his groceries. Well, what if I pay him nothing an hour? Right. Because I don't have a job for him. Um, And now he's facing the stigma of only collecting government benefits and being called lazy and being judged and whatever, when this person may be perfectly willing to do any number of things that aren't demeaning, that aren't, that aren't backbreaking, that aren't arduous, but are semi-skilled and that people have a need for. Yeah. I understand what you guys are saying. I think that we're skirting around the issue is like, what do we do with that segment of society so that they can live on the wages they make? I think it's all good if they can work that $2 an hour job, but how the fuck are they going to eat? I think that's, I think that's what minimum wage is trying to get at. And on the surface, that's the intent. But like you said, it creates dead weight. So well, I think, I think maybe if, be... if you eliminate minimum wage, you gotta, you have to do something. But maybe, you... maybe it is doing, maybe it has a net negative on society, minimum wage. Maybe it's not doing anything to help. Maybe if you got rid of the minimum wage, not only would this guy be able to do something at $2 an hour, but the thing he could buy more things because there's less of that minimum cost for producers. So it helps the producers and the consumers. There's a, there's a wider range of, of being able to buy something. So instead of going to a restaurant and the minimum amount that you can spend on a meal is $15 because everybody in that's associated with it all has a minimum wage. If you, if it's, you know, the dishwasher is only getting paid five instead of $15 an hour, then there's a greater range of goods available. So you could go to the same restaurant and you can get the same $15 meal, but you can also go to that. They, it lowers the bar of purchasing as well so that you could get a $5, not as good meal, but there's something that you could get. I think how that speaks to the assumption by many folks that the big bad business owner is going to increase those prices anyway. And historically, that's really not true. Like when we see significant jumps in the price of consumer goods, it usually has something to do with recent stimulus money, uh, recent bailout, or changes in minimum wage. So. Uh- Part of the counter argument that comes up to me is how can we, how can we ethically participate in an economy where one person is earning the same as half the country combined and in, within that half of the country combined are people literally starving or incapable of getting medical help for things that aren't their fault? That's kind of a contradiction. Is not. I don't know if we can. I mean, we're the, going to solve the, that. <laughs> the meme that comes to mind for me is if he dies, he dies. <laughs> what is that Jean Claude Van, Van Damme that has that? Isn't that meme? If he dies, he dies. I don't know. I haven't seen that one. Myself. That's a little. I mean, that's a little dark. But yeah, I mean, there's one take you could say. Like, if they're not adding value, then you know, let them wither away. That's su- that's such a horrible thing to say. But I don't feel that way, but that, that's one take you can have is if they're not adding value, then they can't add value to society and they'll let them be. Other side is you have compassion for them 
and you have some sort of welfare system so that they can survive and subsist and whatnot. So for me, what this harkens back to is a book that I took off of Dr. Wilde's bookshelf called Report from Iron Mountain, which I don't know to what degree this book is a satire or not, <laughs> but uh, it calls for, it says there was this uh, think group that was put together and they were supposed to do, uh, instead of war gaming, peace gaming. How can we create a world that has peace? And their conclusion was, whether or not this is a single person creating a satire or whatever it is, their conclusion is that war is necessary. And one of the necessities of war is that there's too many people sitting around unfulfilled and um, they get hungry and they get angry and they cause riots and disruption to the economy. So if you can externalize an enemy and then make them go catch bullets, then that that's doubly good for the two, people pulling the strings. Kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Holy shit. That's I, pretty dark. Yeah, yeah man. I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in that camp. <laughs> Uh, no, if I have any argument at all, and, and shame on me for only being able to say here's the problem and not having a solution. If I, you know, if no, I, it was a good controversial opinion because we're still talking about it thirty minutes. <laughs> if, in. I, if I had my genie lamp, though, um, well, a genie lamp, then everybody could have everything they needed. But no, in the absence of the genie lamp, uh, I think the answer is actually, um, man, this is going to sound terrible, but genocide. Uh, no minimum wage. No minimum wage. And let the market determine pay. So, so, so you think that no minimum wage is better than adds more value to the people we're targeting than having a minimum wage? I think it's actually better for people who are earning minimum wage if there is no minimum wage. Yeah, I like it. Man, we really beat that one to death. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's yeah, such a it's such a good one. It's a good topic, though. I think I think. Uh, It'd be cool if we had somebody who was a big supporter of minimum wage on. Uh, I'll come back and, on. And, and maybe you guys could could battle that. I think that'd be awesome. I will come back on. Yeah. So, a new series. So you, you and Al work together. Uh, you know, he works for you and you have a property management company and you are also a professor. Um, could you go into how you balance the two? And is it common for a professor at University of Florida to also have a business on the side or maybe, I don't know, you moonlight as a professor. I don't, I don't really don't know the situation. Sure. Sure. So first off, I'm, I'm actually not a professor. So professor is a title that you earn within an academic institution over a pretty long period of time. Okay. Um, that means you have tenure. Um, and on your way to tenure, you start as an assistant professor, then you become an associate professor. And then at some point, if you're lucky enough, you become a full professor. That's when they call you professor. And that's when you have tenure and you pretty much can't get fired. Um, I am non-tenure track. Okay. Um, I am actually not allowed to be tenure track at the University of Florida because I own a business. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I had okay. no idea. So I can't be tenure track within the business college because I own and operate a business. And it has nothing, to, <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with conflict of interest, oddly enough. Um, the idea is if you're a serious academician, you are doing research and you're doing research pretty much exclusively. And once you earn your doctorate, you, you supposedly have learned everything you can learn from that institution and you are supposed to take that degree and go teach and be a professor somewhere else. So I could also never be tenure track at the University of Florida because I graduated from 
University of Florida. So um, I am eternally screwed on the tenure track side of things because I, like in, I said, in Gainesville at least. In Gainesville, well, and I don't, I, I don't care for research at all, and and I, I don't want to even go down that rabbit hole. I have a whole lot to say about that, but essentially, some of the things that you touched on in your one of your podcasts, Hunter, I heard you talking about. Uh, hokey pokey statistics that wasn't your exact term but like you mm -hmm. abusing stats and i watched that firsthand in a published or parish universe and just basically kind of lost faith in the results of the research that i was conducting that i already didn't think was tremendously valuable um so anyway long story wow. short um i'm an adjunct i only get to teach um at their leisure essentially um i'm fired at the end of every semester um, so I've had to do the gator hire like 19 times, I think, or something like that, the hiring packet <laughs> and Whoa. watch the little video or whatever. Um, I'm not allowed to marshal graduations because those happen outside of the semester. Um, I can't use the pool when I'm not teaching. Like it's, <laughs> it's funny, cool. man. Adjunct lecturer is pretty much a spot on the rug, but I think we add a lot of value. Um, and I think my students feel that I add a lot of value because I've actually been in business. So the reality of it is earning that PhD and even earning my bachelor's, because I did that at UF as well, in business management, both of them in business management, really didn't teach me a tremendous amount about running a business. So the biggest skills I would say I took away were um, being able to read critically and understand scientific writing. Um, being able to write efficiently, right? Because I'm trying to get published in a journal with a limited amount of space. So I'm trying to say a hundred pages worth of things in like three, you know? So being efficient and scientific in writing. And then the ultimate result of that is you be, start thinking scientifically. So it changed the way that I think. It made me a very professional writer. It made me very good at like copy editing. Um, and, and it gave me confidence in speaking because I was teaching. Um, but at the end of the day, the value add when I'm teaching my students, I think is the experience that I've had in the business world and being able to say, well, here's what the textbook says and here's what I've experienced. And what do you guys think? Like, why would there be a, a difference there? Okay. So as a, as a quick interjection, a side question, what value, if any, is the business college providing to undergraduates who want to go into business management or I guess, I mean, it's the main thing that people who go to business college want well, to think, do. They want to be an entrepreneur or a manager, right? He said, you know, his lessons learned, I think he said. Well, uh, those were from the postdoc level, right? Or the graduate level. No, I'd say, I mean, oh, the, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't learn to think critically getting a BA in business from UF. Definitely not. All my classes were online. No, I learned how to do very little work and still get a 3.2. That's the primary thing I learned. <laughs> so what value, if any, is a business college providing to undergraduates? Uh, if you really don't understand business at all, then the core courses are actually extremely helpful, right? Introduction to accounting one and two, macroeconomics, microeconomics, principles of management, principles of marketing, um, all of those things, I learned a lot in those classes. And the core courses, organizational behavior, human resource management, I learned, I learned a lot. I mean, it wasn't immediately applicable to work. I learned more about my life because it was psychology-based. Um, but if I wasn't already interested in business and my dad hadn't been an entrepreneur, 
Um, and had I not already taken some like accounting classes in high school and kind of known this was going to be my world, um, it would have been a good general overview. Um, and some people don't learn well alone or self-guided, so it's fairly guided. Um, it's a good time, right? So you get to come have a good time and you make a lot of connections. Um, and if you do want to go to grad school, you have to do undergrad first. So unfortunately, I think the primary value added for a bachelor's degree right now is that it opens the door for you to be able to get a more advanced degree. Would someone who wanted to be an entrepreneur or in business management perhaps be better served by skipping the university $60,000 debt and going and getting an entry level position and trying to fight their way up as quick as possible? Well, Al, I feel like you're forcing me to share this quote with you from Investment Biker. But uh, yeah, and I share this with my students oftentimes when I talk about the value of adjunct. So this guy, he was a full professor, I think, at Princeton, and he's dating one of his students. And he says in the book, uh, she, and he's, he's a professor in the business school, and she's a student in business school. And he says, I told her what I tell all my students, that she shouldn't go to business college, that besides the money her parents would spend on tuition, there's also the opportunity costs. And that the total value of that is about 100 grand, and that their parents and the student would be better off taking that 100 grand and starting a business, which would either succeed or fail, and in so doing, teach them more about business either way, right? than listening to supposedly learned professors who have never run a business prayed on about doing so. I think that's good advice. That's a hard go, quote, go out, right? Yeah. <laughs> go out and try and fail. I mean, yeah I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know that that's the best advice, but it certainly speaks to what Al is talking about. I think it's important to to be able to fail, both to allow yourself and, and that's the, the grace that you've shown me, Dr. Wild, of allowing people to fail has really opened my eyes to how important it is to take some of that pressure off about trying to bat a thousand. <laughs> oh, Christ almighty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you bang your head against the wall. No, no. Um, but I did, look, I need to temper everything that I just said with, with, with the really important point, And that is, I have a PhD. So it's really easy for me to discount the value of education and say that you don't need it, and blah, 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 because I've had the luxury of having it. Um, and I would say with the PhD in particular, the biggest advantage it's actually afforded me is the th being able to put those three letters on my business card because, um, what, how's it? That guy with the PhD is probably unmotivated and ignorant said nobody ever, right. you know what I mean? So people oftentimes don't even ask me what the PhD is in and then just assume that I am an expert about any and everything that we're talking about. So those that don't have an advanced degree treat that degree in particular like reverence. Mm -hmm. And those that do will afforded me a different level of respect. Like when I was selling these condos at Jackson Square, I, I mainly sold them to um, physicians, lawyers, and professors or like vice presidents of different companies who obviously had advanced degrees as well. And at no point, even though I was very young, because I earned my PhD at 26, 
did they treat me like I was young? And, and of all the shit that I've taken from owners <laughs> or, or even verbal abuse from employees, I honest to God can't think of the last time anyone's accused me of being stupid. Mm. Well, you're not. I mean, but either way, like that's a certification. Well, I think you that might be. Suggest I'm you're not, good at faking you know? not being stupid, at least. <laughs> well, no, 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 you know what I mean? No, that that's a, a general overall qualifier, and that has opened more doors for me than I probably even can imagine. So yeah, that's I fair. don't want to discount the degree that way, but it's funny that the the greatest value I've earned from that degree has been the unintended consequences of having it. And my greatest joy from having the degree and the thing that made it worth the most is that I do get to teach because I love teaching. Yeah. I saw that firsthand when uh, you gave a lecture to some Costa Rican students. Um, Hunter and I often, uh, and Dr. Wild, you're in this same camp, rag on the value of an undergraduate degree in relation to how much it costs because it's exorbitant and, and how and perhaps analogous to the minimum wage, the federal funding of student loans is perhaps accelerating the increase in costs at the at the bottom level. Well, can I share something very terrifying with you that I also like to share with my students? So uh, I, I end up with seniors or I end up with students uh, that are in their last semester, generally in grad school. Um, and so they're at UF, which means if they're from the state of Florida, then they got their undergraduate education paid for via Bright Futures because it is easier to get Bright Futures than it is to get accepted to the University of Florida. So if they're from Florida, their undergrad education is free. So the <laughs> that program is funded entirely by the Florida Lottery. And I think I that's know. pretty ingenious. Right. That's an ingenious well, way of using that. Could, could be, could be. It also could be one of the cruelest things that we do as a society yeah. because the most, so the bulk of the profits for the Florida lottery do not come from lotto. They come from scratch offs and the scratch offs have the lowest overall reward. And I've seen plenty of middle-class and wealthy folks play lotto but I don't know anyone making six figures or more that's buying scratch-off lottery tickets. And if you pay attention to who's buying scratch-off lottery tickets... It's the people who are have, throwing them away in the street when they didn't win. They don't have any business, in many cases, buying scratch-off lottery tickets, but that's their only hope, right, for yeah. some of these types of folks. So imagine that we are funding the education of primarily middle-class white kids so that they can go achieve their dreams by getting an education. And we're funding that with the hopes and dreams of the extremely poor. Okay. Probably so probably didn't go to college. So if we were to give a piece of advice to a minimum wage earner who spends $5 per paycheck per week, whatever, on scratch-offs, what would, what would be an entry-level investment that they should put their $5 into instead? If they don't want to spend a lot of time trying to learn about investing, an index fund. But, you know, and not to be uh, pessimistic, but $5 a month over even a year isn't a tremendous amount of money. And if you're lucky enough to earn an 8% return and that's doubling every nine years, right? Then at the end of the day, you've got a couple grand, which is great. 
But like at that point, I'd almost rather have the thrill of scratching off a lottery ticket and knowing that it could and, be a hundred. And then they I should gamble it. that two thousand dollars. I mean, I don't know. And hopefully, I, double I, it. I, don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I certainly understand the temptation to do that when you know that that extra five dollars. Yes, it like in an overall global scheme could help, but the deck is stacked so fucked that I get it. Inspirational. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it's alarming and disheartening. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, you could. There's a whole rabbit hole we get into with the lotteries, lottery tickets, and the whole lotto system, and who buys them, and then who gets the benefits. Um, but in the vein of you know, you're telling us you're a professor. You know what that means at University of Florida and the implications. Did you own a business before you were a professor or no, whatever you call it, adjunct professor? Yeah, no, no. Unfortunately, um, well, not unfortunately, while I was in undergrad and graduate school, or I'm sorry, I said, in undergrad, I started working for my landlord and I continued to work for my landlord through graduate school. And so when I graduated, I actually didn't own a business. I just went to work for them and I went to work for them for way, way less than I would earn as a professor because I was still focused on learning, not earning, you know, and they made me a loose-ended promise of making me a partner at some point. And they ultimately made good on that, but it was years after I had already graduated. No, I had, uh, I, I had made a decision to not become a researching professor whether it meant I was going to own that business or just continue to work for the guys. I just didn't mm -hmm. care for the career. It's okay. So you did business first and then professor, and then you owned the business after you started owned a business after you started teaching. I bought, out, I bought out my partners essentially in 20, 2009 ish. I started kind of taking it over as my own. But I got my PhD in 04. So I spent five years as an employee. Um, and interestingly enough, that's funny. So I taught when I was in grad school, but they didn't have me teach as an adjunct the first couple of years out. And they just happened to reach out to me in 2009. So it just... Oh, the same time period. just happened to be yeah, that I that I owned the... I mean, it was a business I'd already been doing. It was the same company. I knew everything about it. My life didn't change dramatically once it became mine. Um, in terms of my day-to-day -day workload and, and responsibilities. But um, yeah, that, that happened pretty much within a year of them asking me to come back as an adjunct, and I've been a continuous adjunct since. So I've been 14 continuous years after coming back, and then I taught two years in grad school. So I'm fully anticipating in the next couple of years having a student whose parents or parent took my class. And I'll really feel like an old man. <laughs> <laughs> you see the generations pass before you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was a question, that, question. We want, that we wanted to get at with you because I know that part of your studies for getting your PhD had to do with, I believe, trust and motivation or one of the other. Yeah, I'm, I have a, a published meta-analysis on justifications and then my dissertation was about trust. Okay, justification. Uh, and so obviously building trust can help provide motivation. What's just very briefly, what's the justification? Uh, so, so we did a meta-analysis on, sorry, not just the explanations that companies give their employees for negative outcomes. And we actually looked meta 
meta-analytically at something in the neighborhood of 91 studies conducted over 30 years and tried to come up with some overall answers. Um, and what we found essentially is that not providing an explanation is extremely detrimental. People are more likely to leave, theft increases, productivity goes down. Like if you have to do some layoffs and you just mm -hmm. fire a bunch of people and you don't tell the people that stay, why mm -hmm. all hell breaks loose. Um, excuses don't go very far. In other words, trying to blame someone else, right? Or I didn't know that kind of stuff doesn't work. What worked best was justifications. So um, if I'm sending someone into battle, I could tell them they need to kill people for the fight for freedom. You know what I mean? So, so, some, some higher order concern that they can speak to, or does we had to have these layoffs in order to keep the company alive. And, so, and the more detailed the explanation and the more sincere it appeared, not surprisingly, uh, the more that mitigated the negative impacts of whatever that bad corporate thing was okay um i think that makes a lot of sense to me in the fact that it's usually better to have uh, some kind of communication rather than no communication um in your i guess um transitioning from your research into your practical application as a business owner and uh, employer and manager how much of being in this kind of a position is having both a carrot and a stick? Um, so I'm going to read between the lines here and I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say we're sort of getting into what place does discipline have within an organization? That's right? what I'm getting at. <laughs> so, so, okay. So, so I know, I don't mean to burst, but so um, I am really not much of a stick guy i am uh way more of a carrot guy and and my basic feeling is enforced discipline actually has very little role in organizations unless you're firing someone and i, I did a lot of thinking about that and and i went back to some of the material that i teach because i teach leadership behaviors and when i do i talk about power and influence and i think that's really kind of what we're talking about if i'm disciplining someone I'm punishing them or if I'm, I'm using extinction, in other words, I'm taking something away from them that they were previously enjoying, right? Or I'm hoisting something upon them that they don't want. Um, I'm trying to get them to do something, right? I'm trying to influence their behavior to either do or not do something. Well, if I'm trying to influence somebody, I don't want to just influence their behavior because if I'm just influencing their behavior, chances are that short term. What I really want to do is change their behavior and their attitude about that thing. So if I can change their attitude, then I don't need to go back and continuously check their behavior. The reason that I argue that punishment and extinction don't have a lot of place in a business organization is they're not effective at creating attitudinal change, right? If you're lazy and I threaten to fire you, you're you might work hard for a couple weeks or a couple days or try to not appear lazy, but if that's the way you are, it's not going to be sustainable and you're going to go back to being just the way you were. That, that, that it, and certainly you're not going to feel like you care more about the business or that you have some true desire to actually work harder. You're just trying to not get fired in most cases. So 
if you really want to influence people, uh, then you've got to use not only the right influence tactics, but you've got to use the right form of power. And that's where I think we start talking about carrot and stick. So I'm blessed, right? I'm at the very top of this organization. I have every kind of power that a person can have within an organization. I have organizational power. In other words, we can point to an organizational chart. There I am at the top. That means you guys all answered me. I also have the power over rewards, right? I can give raises. I can give bonuses. I have power over punishments. I can fire people. I can tell them to go home for the day, right? Well, any asshole that's a manager has those forms of power. It's really inherent to the position, right? But how effectively they're able to use that specific type of organizational power at some point comes back to the individual themselves. And that is when a person has referent power. So in other words, I could have people who consider me an expert and they count on that knowledge and that experience and that expertise. And that's why they are more likely to listen to the things that I say or allow me to influence them. Or maybe I'm charismatic or there's something about my success that makes people think that being spending time around me and working with or for me could ultimately lead to them having additional levels of success as well. And I think if you don't possess expert power, right? If people really, people that work for you don't think that you are an expert, that you don't have the knowledge, skills, and abilities, and if they don't want to be around you, then it doesn't really matter how much coercive power, or punishment power, or organizational power you have, you are going to be ineffective. And I had this point driven home for me by um, a district chief with the fire department when I was doing diversity and inclusion training. I had some of his folks basically not listening to me during the presentation. And he told me he didn't know what to do about that. I'm like, well, tell them they have to do it. You're their boss. And he looked right at me and he said, the minute you have to tell someone that you're their boss, you've lost. And in fact, it was probably well before that because they obviously have no respect for you if that's not proximal in their mind at all times. So what was his solution to get people to listen to you? If they don't want to listen, they're not going to get the message. If they don't get the message, they're not going to perform well and they're going to ultimately get fired. And, was that explicit that to them? Did they understand that explicitly? For sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. But it was like a lot of show and ass and stuff, right? Because that's not a message that's easily received by some groups, you know? Um, but I, I didn't realize one thing, because as I was preparing and kind of thinking about this topic, I thought about the few times in my career where I've actually had to enforce discipline and either use extinction or punishment. And it's only been a handful of employees, but interestingly enough, every single one of those employees, I ultimately had to fire. And in most cases, it was within 90 days of that first disciplinary action. So <laughs> my thing is, if I have to motivate you, if I have to remind you repeatedly to do your job, or if I have to threaten you, I'm certainly going to fire you. And it's probably going to be sooner than later. I'm a little more forgiving than I should be unless I find out someone's causing damage to others in the organization because I, I like to hold out hope. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm not trying to change people that work for me. 
if they are not internally motivated and they are not honest. I'm, yeah, I think the I think that's important. I think the for me, if I was a leader in an organization, I think the biggest reason for me to use a negative reinforcement is if they're adversely affecting the other people they're working with because that's going to have like a domino effect and if they sort of infect the other people with that negativity, then I'm going to have a huge problem on my hand. Certainly. Yeah, so what do you do in a situation where uh, a handful of people might be in the same level or position and a, a number or one of them is having to pick up slack because others aren't as hardworking or motivated. And what do you do there? I mean, what I have traditionally done is allowed that to probably go on longer than it should um, at the expense of the better performer um, and allowed, enabled that worse performer some additional benefit of the doubt that probably should not have been afforded to them. It's a, this is oddly specific. Well, well, no, I can tell you this. It's really unfortunate. And my, my wife dealt with this when she worked at the hospital, people who work, and this is, this might be a more controversial opinion than what we started with people who work hard and care, work hard and care. It doesn't matter how much you pay them, how unfairly they're treated, how they're compensated compared to other people. Like it may reduce their motivation some and it may ultimately frustrate them into leaving. But for, for the duration of the time they're there, they're going to continue to work hard because that's how they are. And it's so it's the group project thing. Like, it's just always going to be a group project. The hardest workers in, in life, whether it's business, whether it's family, those that are willing to take on heavy responsibilities are always going to be given heavy responsibilities. I've always thought the person that does the most work at work at work is the person that cares the most. So if you're always like somebody who cares the second most, <laughs> you're good. If, but if you're stuck being the person that cares the most about whatever thing you're working on, you're kind of screwed because you're going to be the one that picks up the slack for everybody. And that's why nurses and doctors get screwed because at the end of the day, they can They're try to punish their coworkers or the hospital, but it's the patients that are going to suffer. So they yeah. allow themselves to get pooped on. Yeah. And, and a nurse and a doctor can't care about someone's health issue more than the person who has the health issue. Well, they often do if it's mm -hmm. an adult, but yeah. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think we, so I think we touched on most of the things. Um, there's the other one about seller financing. So, uh, do you use seller financing to operate your business? Is that something that you, uh, yeah, you, yeah. you utilize or is it traditional financing to expand? So I currently have six and a half million dollars worth of mortgages with eight mortgage holders on 54 properties that, that all of that is owner financed. And then I have one condo with a bank loan and I've got a balloon coming up in like three years on that one. So no, I would say owner 54, so 54 properties that are owner financed, 54 properties, owner financed. eight different people have taken the leap. That's awesome. To, How to do you convince them? So what's the, how does that conversation go? So, so for the first two, it was my business partners. Um, and it, it was a fairly fluid conversation because they were talking about retiring um, and knew because I had been working for them that I didn't have any damn money. And I knew I didn't have any money, um, but I had spent a decade learning everything there was to learn about 
running their business and about property management in Gainesville. So what I was able to do with those two was lever my expertise and my relationship with them, not my money. So I did those deals, the first deals with those guys for zero down. Well, I knew going forward, like I wouldn't have That's the awesome. time. Zero down is the best. <laughs> Man, when I sold them and my cash on cash return was infinity, those were good days. Yeah, yeah, right. So, 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 uh, no, but I knew going forward because I'd spent 10 years getting to know these guys. I couldn't now spend 10 years getting to know the next guy and 10 years getting to know the guy after that. So it becomes a value creation proposition. So, um, if, if anyone listening, or if you guys ever decide you're going to try to get someone to own or finance property for you, um, you're going to need to create value for them. And there's a couple of different ways you can do that. Uh, first, if you own or finance somebody and you hold the note, the gains on the property are spread across the entire life of the note. So imagine if you've got a guy that owns a property, an apartment complex, free and clear. He's probably owned that joker forever, right? He's fully depreciated it, and he probably paid $20,000 a unit, right? And now it's worth $200,000 a unit. The last thing that guy wants after a, a, a whole life career in real estate is a five-gallon drum full of money uh, and no annuity and a huge capital gains tax bill from the IRS for 15% of that difference. So it allows them to defer that over a 30-year period. So um, does the percentage of the gain change, whether it's the lump sum sale or whether it's spread out along the payments? No. Okay. Now you would be, I believe you would be subject to changes in whatever that rate was over the oh, oh, life of that yeah right so if if you did one big lump sum would it jump them up to a new tax bracket no 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 capital gains doesn't affect your tax bracket okay uh you you pay 15% of the difference okay so that's i mean minus your call i mean it it's a little more hairy than that but basically 15% of your your true legitimate profit after cost of holding and cost of disposition and depreciation and whether everything. your salary income is 20,000 or 200,000 doesn't matter it doesn't okay. it's not counted as ordinary income it's okay. literally counted as separate separate class as capital gains okay so it also allows folks who are used to an annuity type situation in other words they've been receiving monthly rent proceeds for a very long period of time to continue to receive an annuity but not worry about what's going to happen to insurance rates. Are rent rates going to go up and down? Are we overbuilt? Is there going to be vacancy? I need to move to Georgia and I'm not going to be able to collect from my tenants. All of their concerns about the rental market dropped to zero and they're still collecting an annuity, which is sort of what they've set themselves up to do from the beginning. And if they've sold it to an expert, then they really don't have to worry about what's going to happen to the market. As long as they believe that I have as good a shot or a better shot at renting it than they do, then they don't have to worry about whether I'm qualified enough to, to own that asset. And in every case, I've managed the asset for at least a couple of years before I've come to own it. So mm. they know what rent rate I can get because I've gotten that rent rate. Um, it also allows them uh, guaranteed above market returns. So in every case, I've had to come in and certainly pay more than I would have paid if I'd gone to the bank. So what's interesting is by doing that voluntarily and telling them, look, I before at the bank, I'll do six, I'll do six and a half, I'll do seven, depending on what I negotiated. Most of them did not give me a, um, 
they gave me the fixed rate because it was a high rate, right? And now <laughs> we're almost to a point where six and a half is a pretty good rate to get. So if that mm. suddenly becomes eight or nine or 10, I'm actually better off for having paid that premium at the beginning. And that allowed me to lock in for 30 years, which generally, not even generally, good fucking luck doing that at a bank. Mm -hmm. Good luck locking in for more than five years. So you're, it's just not going to happen. So what's the benefit to the benefit to you for having a high percentage rate is that now you it's know low. what you're doing for 30 years and you don't have to like renegotiate it after five. Yeah, it's fixed. Yeah. Yeah. So, bank, yeah. so even even as a. Oh, yeah, because it's, it's I guess it's commercial, right? It's a commercial loan. If it's an investment property, then they they it's only for five years. Interesting. Oh yeah, good luck doing any sort of term more than five on a rental property. It's absolutely yeah. not going to happen. And all I had to do was that first offer that didn't have that wasn't adjustable. I looked back thirty years, and within that thirty years, average mortgage rates have been nineteen percent. <laughs> so projecting, you know what I'm saying? Projecting forward, like I can, and I knew I could hold the six and a half and still be profitable because real estate's a profitable fucking business. So it was really more about getting the asset and being willing to pay a little bit more. Not only that, I generally they did it with pretty low money down even with the next guys because they wanted to collect that percentage on a larger chunk of money as humanly possible mm -hmm. right why why take six and a half percent from me on two hundred thousand and then go invest the other hundred thousand in the stock market and hope and wonder and worry you know um the other interesting thing you can do to create value for someone willing to own or finance is put a balloon in there Right. We all know that mortgages are front loaded by the nature of the amortization with interest. Yeah, that was my next question. I, I haven't had to do that for many of them because they truly do want the annuity. But in a few cases, that was the only way to get it done. And as long as I have at least five years, I'm totally down for that. I mean, I'm going to pay more interest over the life of the loan, but my tenants are going to pay more interest over the life of the loan. I'm not coming out of pocket. You know what I mean? What do, the, what do those terms look like? You're you're ballooning at the same rate as inflation? No, no, no. Balloon means I make my down payment at some point in the future. So we uh, agree. Uh, so he pays them in full after like five years. Yep. Whatever balance is left, I got to pay on a given period. So we can do a 30-year amortization, and I'm paying you as if I'm going to pay you for 30 years. But the last payment in year five is the entire balance remaining. Oh, I, for some reason, I thought a balloon was like an in, increased mm -mm. interest rate no, over time. No, no, the best way to look at it is just kicking your down payment down the road. Kicking the down payment or the full payment? I mean, it's a full payment, but but how, essentially, how can you afford to do a full payment? On well, you just remortgage. Properties? You remortgage at the end. Yeah, you go refi, or you can sell it. Yeah, you refi. And there and there's the answer, Hunter. So. Al, that 1102 property I just bought had a looming balloon. So I could either go and try to refinance that with the bank or sell the property and take the profits like it did. Oh, I have completely misunderstood what a balloon is for years. Yeah, no, and here, here's the thing. I paid, I, I, mortgage, I had a $425,000 mortgage with that guy at 6.5%, and I paid on that mortgage the regular payments for five full years, and when I paid him out, I gave him $400,000. So I made him five years of fairly large payments and then gave him four hundred grand. So he was super happy, right? Mm. He collected a bunch of interest and now he got the full lump sum pretty much at the end. But I'm super happy too because I increased the value of the property $125,000. So he and I had a great conversation on the phone when I was 
tell him that I was about <laughs> to pay him off, right? We were both really, really happy. So that allows them to get that cash pop. And then the other thing, and this is more of a, a, an emotional and mental thing for these guys, anyone who has owns rental property free and clear has almost certainly at some point been subject to the whims and whimsy of multiple banks, bankers, mortgage, underwriters, and been through all kinds of shit. Government regulations. Most people who own real estate hate lawyers and bankers, hate Mm -hmm. them. They do. They deal with them because they feel like it's necessary. But at the end of the day, the, the level of resentment is insane. Um, and in reality, one of my mentors says, if you don't own your rental property free and clear, then you actually work for the bank, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, because you're paying them first. And if you're lucky enough, there's some money left over for you, right? So because these guys have been abused by the banks, I literally, when I'm talking about owner financing, I don't even call it owner financing. I literally refer to them when I'm talking about is you be the bank, you be the bank. It's time for you to play the bank. How would you like to be the bank? How about we leave the bank out of this? Like we unite against the common enemy that is the bank. And then they earn their guaranteed returns. If, If I'm like, I don't feel like I'm doing these guys a disservice or like I'm selling them some pipe dream. I mean, the only thing that seems weird is that they're willing to let me pay them over 30 years on a price we agree on today, because we all know that assets can be worth way the hell more than that time value of money wise at year 30. Um, but I get why, cause they want the annuity or whatever, but it does create value for them. And to be quite frank, at some point in my career, I will almost certainly own or finance somebody on some portion of the real estate that I own for the same reasons that I just spelled out to you guys. Hunter, that banker argument is a emotional job to be done. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. We, <laughs> Eric, we, we're applying this concept called the jobs to be done framework. I don't know if you've come across this to uh. our podcast where you basically segment out your, your customers into different personas and you think about what jobs to be done they have that they're hiring your podcast or hiring you for. And that, that banker argument is an emotional job to be done. That emotional job to be done could be, um, I want to feel like uh, we're uniting against a common enemy. And a way to do that is to present your case like, hey, you be the bank or let's keep the banks out of it. So, you know, we're just two consenting humans transacting a, you know, a real estate uh, sale. Yeah, there's well, functional I mean, jobs to be done, emotional jobs to be done, and community social, social jobs to be done. Social jobs to be done. Well, let's not forget the tremendous economic weight that having a bank involved creates for an investor. I'm also not paying origination fees. They're not. Uh, they're not pulling my credit. There's no expensive underwriting. Process. Yeah, I think the credit like, thing is the is the biggest thing because if you want to go get a loan for a car or something that that's not going to, you have no concern about your debt to income ratio, except as how it applies to you. You got to make sure you pay all your debts, but your debt to income, the banks care about that and they pull your credit, then your credit score matters and all that shit. If you do owner financing, that's just, uh, I guess it's the wild west kind of. Not really. No, no, no. They, they are interested, but they don't care about my credit score. They want to see my personal financial statement, right? Do you currently own property and is it profitable? That's, so when you when you owner finance, you sit usually send the owners a personal finance statement, even if they don't want it, because I tell them you, you got to be nice. at least responsible enough to take a look at this thing. And in fact, it's funny I showed it to one guy, 
and mentioned to him after the deal had already closed. I'm like, well, remember when I gave you my personal? Well, it's not audited money? though. It's not. No, it's I not know. audited. I know, it's but, like but here, here's how much money I make according mm -hmm. to me and everything that I own according to me. Well, I mean, the mortgages are recorded. And I don't put anything else. I don't put my doodads on there. I don't put the cars or, or even my own personal home. The credit I'm a, score would care I'm about a that. Rich dad, poor dad, a believer in what an asset actually means is that it produces income. So I only have income producing assets on there. Those are all recorded. Like it, that, they could do that research really quickly. And then the income, I could produce a rent roll. I mean, I guess it's not audited, but it's from my property management company, not me as the owner of Doc. And every time they ask, it doesn't ding your credit score because they're looking they, at it. They, they they don't ask. I'm having a volunteer. They're mainly willing to do it because again, they trust that I have at least as good a shot as renting it for top dollar as they do. And as long as they can believe that, then then they know they're going to get that check. Yeah. Yeah. The, the credit score the banks use as a way to limit to reduce risk when they give people loans and the way uh -huh. you're you're doing that to you know make them seem like they're reducing the risk by looking at your assets and like oh this is a this is not a risky deal because he does this with other properties so they're they're reducing risk the same Correct. thing with the credit scores because they well, don't want to default on a payment well, if you have well, a low credit score that's indicative of the chances that you're going to default on a payment on a loan i would argue though if we're talking about commercial property investment, then the bank also wants your personal financial statement. And if they're pulling your credit, it's only so that they can squeeze you on the rate. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you're perfectly qualified. You've got $2 million in net worth on your personal financial statement and your income statement is reasonable or close to break even. But because you've got a student loan and your wife likes to put stuff on the credit card, your beacon score is 720. And the bank goes, oh man, if it was 750, we would give you that that prime rate, but it's going to cost you a half a point. I really want to help you here, but I can't. I really your credit score is telling me otherwise. <laughs> Which at that point, your credit score, I mean, again, your credit score shows your ability to pay monthly revolving expenses. When you're talking about mortgages on a property, the, the personal financial statement means way, 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 way more than anything pulled bureau could ever possibly mean i love mm -hmm. how grassroots and punk rock it is putting a middle finger to the bank and doing a human to human deal i'm, I'm telling you man it, it, to eliminate the fees the time so that one condo i have that i have a bank loan on i bought 11 houses during the process of underwriting for that one condo <laughs> wow it's the way of the future. It, no, it's not. It's really not. You, good luck. I mean, everyone who's done it has been old because no one even <laughs> talks about that anymore. Like, if, I mean, Well, it's a secret. It's a best kept secret. I, but I feel like everybody's talking about it on social media. If you follow, really? any, if you yeah. follow any, any real estate guru <laughs> on social media, they're like, let me tell you how I bought this house with $5. And it's, oh all, it's all seller finance. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. Here's what you got to realize. To, to have a seller financer, you don't just have to have someone who's invested in property. They have to own it free and clear. And there's just not that many of those guys out there. You know How do I you mean? find those people? I manage for them already. So you, okay. So your, your uh, funnel of properties to purchase are usually come through your portfolio that you manage? Every single time. Interesting. Every time, because I built a relationship with those folks as well as a professional and as a property manager. They all know, like if 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 you're an owner, 
and I manage property for you, you also know that I own property because I go to lunch with these guys and everything. And I tell them I want to own $10 million worth of investment real estate someday. Like it's, it's all out in the open and really clear. I like it. I see you're about to say something, Alec. <laughs> which one was the chicken and which one was the egg? Being in property management or the owner financing? Oh, being in property management. Like I, I realized really early on that everyone loves real estate. It's so great. You can be a millionaire and you can too. But at the end of the day, it's a very labor-intensive, tedious, cumbersome, um, an expensive thing to actually physically do. It's not as easy as sticking a sign in the yard, showing a couple people, then collecting rent checks. It is when everything goes perfect, but almost every time we take over a property, it's because the shit didn't go perfect. They put someone in from church or they put a family member or whatever it is, and now they're in the middle of a nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, so now I just realized, you know, I could create tremendous value for myself and for other property owners by being really good at property management. And then once I realized the pay for that is 10 to 12% of the gross, that means it's a valuable skill. These people aren't stupid. They're not just throwing money at me because they don't have better sense. It's because they couldn't do it as well for 12% themselves, or it's not worth the hassle of them doing it for that 12%. Or they themselves. or they can't. They don't live or there. Or they physically can't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They physically can't. Mm -hmm. So any uh so we have a couple questions that Wait, we usually Hunter, ask oh, can, can I, real quick let me just on on that, on that last point when you asked about my funnel um now because my wealth build isn't alligator realty it's the rental houses that i own right? it's not alligator. the property management company it's your investment it's the, property it's ownership the yeah. that, that's where my wealth is going to come from it's not where my paycheck right now comes from but the wealth down the road will come from that so when I am bringing new owners into Alligator Realty, I am pretty much exclusively trying to bring people in that I think at some point I might be able to purchase their property. So, husband so you're always wife, prospecting somebody, well, somebody I could maybe own or finance in the future. Correct. I'm way more likely to want to manage your properties, even if they're problematic. If you're 67 years old and you and your husband have done it yourself for 11 years or whatever, I'm all over having customers like that i love having folks um that's your persona. properties for years or um if they own it even if i know they own it i'm very very interested in bringing them into the fold and you know they they own it because you talk to them and they talk about it and it's like a personal relationship you don't have any tools that you use online to like produce a list of like a thousand homeowners that don't have a bill or anything. So, so no, here, here's why are you laughing, Alec? Al's doing Al's doing lead generation. So, so oh, gotcha. we, we're kind of doing that right now. But no, generally, for me to find out that a prospect that's contacted me, for example, because that's how we've generally done just word of mouth. The way that I find out if they own it or not is within the very first conversation with any of these folks. I make it abundantly clear that I own a bunch of investment real estate and that that's why I'm a property manager. And I also remind them that most people fail into property management by nature of not being good realtors and needing a paycheck. 
once I tell them what I own, then generally they're like, oh, well, I have 12. And then I'll say, well, I still owe blah, blah, blah. Well, kind of, you know, how, how's that going for you? We're in the same club. So it's not, I'm not even being nosy at that point. We're, we're mm -hmm. just two investors talking about our investments. Mm -hmm. So they're usually quick to volunteer that information. I like it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I feel like stories are a good way for you to connect with people and you kind of have, you have a story of being a professor, you have your backgrounds in business, you have a PhD and you talk to people, you own property. And when you prospect folks, you have, the, you have a really good story. I feel like, um, and I would consider you a good storyteller and that's probably because you teach kids, teach people for a living. Um, do you, you have any good storytellers that you know personally? That 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one will be way more accessible than the other. Uh, <laughs> so believe it or not, a great storyteller I know is my former mentor, Eric Forrest, who, um, who actually hired me into property management to begin with and, and really took me under his wing, taught me how to surf. Um, um, we lived next door to each other for 10 years. Like we, he literally built his dream house attached to an old house and we didn't even bother to remove the door between the two houses. Um, but that guy has, he's 15 years further along than I am. Um, and went through a lot of the same steps that I went through. He's not a broker. He never managed for anyone else, but he's definitely a, I had nothing. I dropped out of college. I bought the first rental house. I leveraged it to buy the second one. Um, and he's a very, very conversational tone and really likes to tell stories. So I'd be glad to share his contact information with you guys. I would be, I would love to talk to him. <laughs> Best. <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> uh, I don't, yeah. The, the, the one that might be a little easier to reach and may, um, may blow your mind by the amount of, of insight that he has, particularly as it relates to real estate investing and gentrification, um, social issues within neighborhoods would be Larry Seal. Um, mm. So he's another mentor of mine. He's owner financed me on properties. He's been a property owner for well over 20 years and he's bought properties for as little as $15,000 that were condemned um, and then brought them back himself. Um, he spent 20 years forming relationships with people in one specific neighborhood so that they would contact him when it was time to sell their properties um, and has been tremendously generous in terms of trying to have some affordable rent available to traditional uh, residents of that particular neighborhood. And even when I've purchased properties from him in multiple cases, um, I kept the rent rate for that person who'd already been in the house before I purchased it. Uh, artificially low for 24 to 36 months. So they had ample time to try to find some sort of replacement housing. So um, he's way more compassionate than I am. Um, I wish I was more like him. Um, and he's certainly very, I, I love listening to him. So I can't imagine you guys would as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I would love to talk to him, uh, Larry as well. I've had lunch with Larry and I can, I can affirm what Dr. Wild is saying and I would love to have him on. Um, it'd be interesting to get the setup to have him on, but I'm going to reach out to him. Yeah, I think he would enjoy it. And, and, yeah. and um, yeah, cause he, he, I, I'm sure that would be the first podcast he's ever been on. Well, he might not even know what a podcast is. 
Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. And he, I, my guess is that's what he listens to most of the time instead of music, like in the truck or whatever. Interesting. No, yeah, you're, yeah. you're probably right. So I have a question that's come up to me and it's as we've been speaking and it's burning and it's really unfair to ask potentially near the end. But <laughs> could, you, could you tell me what is capitalism? <laughs> that's an easy 60 second answer. What, so, so to be honest with you, Al, I'm so super tempted to just Google the word capitalism right now, but I'm not going to do that. I'm, you, you got me cold here. Um, I would say capitalism is allowing markets to whatever extent possible to function through natural forces. So it's, it's a, it's a, a lack of regulation. Yeah. It's minimal regulation. Uh, minimal regulation and, and not, not just regulation, but minimal attempts to monkey with a supply and demand curve. You know what I mean? Like to, to, Voodoo like stuff. minimum, like minimum wage, like minimum wage, like the stuff that doesn't take very long to talk through to realize it's sketchy at best, harmful at worst. Um, and I guess the other portion of capitalism would be um, the uh, maybe even a larger chunk than the lack of regulation would be the ability to lever, right there, like our whole economy functions on borrowed money yeah yeah and um it's ironic to me that i like want to get my car paid off and i want to carry a credit card debt and i'm six and a half million dollars in mortgage debt (laughs) 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 and i don't care about that at all because it cash flows and i'm watching the wealth build so it's not it it's not that debt is this thing that we particularly need to be scared of um but it needs it, capitalism is using that debt to create more value for yourself, not squandering the proceeds of that debt on things that you know will decrease in value over time. Okay, so two things. One, David Delahunty, that was his controversial opinion that debt yep. is a good thing. Two, isn't there usually some kind of line item that says the debt holder can call in the debt at any given time? No, I don't have that. Well, not with your owners, but with the banks. Like if you had a mortgage with the hey, bank. More, more reason to the <laughs> bank. <laughs> yes. And I watched my partners actually be subject to that in a major way that helped dissolve their partnership. Um, I don't know if they would care if I discuss this on the podcast. I don't know that, that, that they'd ever listen, but uh, essentially they had a loan on a private dormitory with the same bank that gave them the loan to build Jackson Square. So they had an apartment asset with a loan with the bank and they were building condominiums for sale speculatively with a loan from the same bank. In 06, it was pretty clear we weren't going to make it, right? That we weren't going to even sell enough units to pay what it would cost to pay off the contractor when the building was done. And 
the bank certainly did not want an unsold condo project. So one of our competitors that was interested in buying that dorm had a relationship with that bank and said to the bank president, I'm interested in buying that dorm and I would pay X amount of dollars and that would probably cover the shortfall that these guys are looking at on Jackson Square. And so the bank president was like, yeah, it's not a bad idea. So he called the guys and said, I'm either going to call your loan due at the end of this week for Jackson Square, or you can sell the apartment complex, the dorm, to the to this gentleman that just told me he'd pay $7 million or whatever it was, because that would get you upside. So they were forced to take their most profitable income-producing asset and forced to sell it to cover the shortfall on the biggest financial Man, investment crazy. mistake they'd ever made. It doesn't made. surprise me, though. I think that's at that level, it's always like that. It's all did they, cutthroat. Did they use any of those uh, proceedings to take out a hit on the guy who forced that sale? <laughs> <laughs> um, he's not very well liked in our circles. And you and, I actually, <laughs> you and I talked about him the other day. He owns some rental property. He was one of our leads. He works for a majorly large property management company in town. Oh, well. big, big property management company in town. And, and we ran across that. And I said, no, 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 I don't think he would have us manage for him. But uh, we can talk about uh, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. They, well, try, they try really hard. Thank you, Eric. Yep, yep. We've been talking a long time. This was meant to be 45 minutes. Now we're about double that. And uh, I appreciate it. You're a great storyteller. I learned a lot. I, every time I do this, I learn a lot. But I learned a lot from you uh in a very short period of time i feel like i tried to limit the time but it just kept going um and i thought all of it was valuable and uh, i appreciate al for bringing eric on i like the relationship you guys have on even though you work together you work for eric <laughs> I don't and we know, kind of man. skirted some of the topics <laughs> yeah i think i would say we work together more than al works for me at this point but but yeah fair enough there, there's definitely some <laughs> so, some specific situations that were inside for us for sure and um, but I appreciate you guys having me on, man. And, and um, y'all made me think about things in slightly different ways than I had as well. So I think it's, uh, I, I'm starting to see the value in the um, banter podcast. And so I had actually never listened to a back and forth podcast or an interview podcast um, until I listened to y'all's. I've listened to a ton oh, of Jordan, Jordan Peterson and stuff, but it's, it's monologue, you know. Well, Dr. Wild, thank you for coming on. Yep. Hunter, thank you for uh, asking the real questions. Yeah, I appreciate both you guys, and I learned a lot as well. Yep, cool. I appreciate the non-circle jerk. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Anytime, and if you guys decide to get that pro minimum wage person on, I'll clear my calendar. <laughs> yeah, I got a new I got a new task to find somebody who loves minimum wage. <laughs> Maybe somebody who works at McDonald's. Maybe one of our tenants. <laughs> oh, shit. That might not be the best idea. <laughs> I think we both thought of the same person now. All right, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Many thanks to you, listener, for making it all the way through. Before you go, a quick ask. If you're listening on Spotify, scroll down. We've got a poll and we've got a question. So please answer those. We'd love to have some feedback, some back and forth, some repartee, some tete-a-tete, some conversation. Give us a little bit of feedback there. Or you could go a little bit further in depth and send us an email at entitledopinionpodcast at gmail.com. 
If you're interested in getting in touch with Eric Wild, uh, we'd be happy to forward on any questions or concerns, or if you'd like to get into the real estate game in Gainesville or in general, Eric Wild's a great resource. Dr. Wild, that is. If you want to check out some more of our resources, you can go to our website, entitledopinion.com. And we have an Instagram, entitledopinionpod. If you're into DMing, slide on in there. And that's it. We thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.